and you look at the math now, and you overlay that big hump of people my age, I'm a white hair, um, and you match that to the lifetime utilization of healthcare resources, what you see is there is going to be, and it's already started, a gigantic hemorrhage of money at CMS. It's not just going to be a nosebleed, it's going to be potentially a lethal nosebleed. Welcome back to another edition of EMS One Stop. As usual, I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and I have a very special guest with me today, and that is Dr. Joe Ryan, uh, who has been in and around our industry for a long, long time, has uh, been there, seen it, done it, and is here to tell us all about it. Uh, Dr. Ryan, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rob. Um, it's a privilege, really, to, to talk to you guys. And um, just a little bit of context about me. I am in medicine actually because of a uh, single kind of uh, chance decision that I made at 17. Um, I was uh, just graduated from high school and I started in a medical school just right out of high school. Not because I was any kind of rocket scientist, but because they were starting a new medical school in Kansas City and I went to a meeting on the campus one day and I put my name on a list and later on in the summer, you know, uh, they called me back and said, you know, we don't know if this thing is gonna happen, but here's the deal. We're starting a six year medical school. You're going to start medical school right out of high school. It hasn't been approved by the legislature in Missouri yet, but if it doesn't work out, you know, we'll give you biology credits for the stuff. And so I called the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I accepted and I was planning to go to college. And I said, you know, can I delay my admission for a year? And they said, okay, no big deal. And uh, so I said, why not? I'll do this. And, you know, if I had gone to see you in Boulder in 1970, I'd have a little pot farm in Sunshine Canyon right now, and my life would have had a totally different trajectory. But, you know, it's... I'll never get over this, you know, just one sort of chance decision really changed the trajectory of my entire life, which I'm so thankful for because, you know, I was born to do medicine. I, truthfully, I never studied in medical school. It just was all sort of like, you know, a sculpture and you chipped it away and it was all revealed underneath. It was just an incredible thing. And, you know, I was always comfortable with a great deal of uncertainty, so I went into emergency medicine residency when emergency medicine was not yet approved by the ACGME as a specialty. So it could have been that, you know, I got done with the whole thing and I would never have been credentialed, but, you know, as chance would have it, it happened while I was a resident. I got credentialed and I got uh, asked to be an attending, stay on as attending at Truman in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, as things rolled downhill to the junior faculty, a couple of years later, I was named the medical director of MAST. And, you know, I didn't really know a whole lot about EMS, but... Um, As it doesn't exist anymore, Joe, tell us where MAST is. 
So MAST was the second public utility model system that Jack Stout set up in Kansas City, the first one being EMSA in uh, Oklahoma City at that time. And Jack and Patrick Smith came to a grand rounds for the emergency medicine residents when I was a senior resident and presented this story about this new kind of system. And I was actually extremely disappointed because you know, I had been uh, riding on ambulances in the old system in Kansas City as a third year medical student. And I was out with the crews and, you know, they would always lie about their location and try to jump calls. And, you know, it was a round robin system where they gave the thing in turn, you know, the call in turn to each one of five ambulance services. And I was extremely disappointed that they were going to screw all that stuff up. But that was how little I really knew about what EMS was about. So I get into the uh, Mass Dispatch Center with Jerry Overton, who was the associate director of MAST at the time. And he's showing me around about, you know, what people are doing. And there's a 48K Apple II computer sitting on a desk with one of those green screen monochrome monitors. And this guy was doing SSM. And it was a thing called MyCat. I have the five and a quarter inch floppy disk that ran it. But, you know, Jerry explained to me what SSM was about. And I said, that can't work. I mean, I'm an emergency medicine specialist. I know that emergencies are random. And he says, no, they're not. They're not at all. And so one of the first things that I did as medical director was I worked with Jerry to really try to measure whether this was true or not. So we looked at data from the system pre-SSM. So we had the number of unit hours on the street, and it was Kelly shifts, so they were 24-hour shifts, and the average response time of the system, and figured out what you know, the unit hour utilization was. And then it took two years after they implemented SSM to get up to trim. So they were above, consistently above 90% fractile response time. And so we looked at the changes that had occurred in terms of, of the number of unit hours in the system, how they were deployed, the UHU, what was the average response time, because we didn't have fractile response time from the first group, 979. We did have it for 82, and we ran the numbers, and it was unbelievable. I mean, I, I said, we must have done something wrong, because the average response times were faster by about a minute. The unit hour utilization over the two periods had was 35% more efficient. And he explained to me, you know, I had learned about peak load staffing and you know, uh, the deployment strategies of tactile uh, uh, or uh, temporal uh, response time deployment, geographic response time deployment. And so we decided to write this paper up, uh, and I presented it at the University Association for Emergency Medicine meeting in, I think it was 84, in uh, Utah, Salt Lake City. And so there was a bunch of papers clustered about EMS stuff. I was the last one in the line. So I walk into the room. There's nobody there. There's nobody there but me and the moderator. 
And so I present the whole thing to the guy who's the moderator of the program, and it just happened to be Ron Stewart, which he's like one of the first real EMS medical directors in the whole thing, and he got it, which is awesome. So I was pretty much hooked on this, and then we've got this stuff back to Jack, and that was when I began to work as sort of the physician consultant member of the fourth party. And so from then on, it's, uh, so yeah, it's been a great us, ride. Explain to us all about fourth party. So the fourth party was, I don't know whether it was actually early on ever even really a corporate entity or anything, but it was Jack Stout, his partner, Alan Jameson, and then by that time, when they were in Kansas City, it was Patrick Smith, who was really, I think, the only full-time employee of the fourth party. And they were consultants in EMS system design. And they had, their first gig was in Oklahoma City. You know, they were called by the, the county commission, I guess it was, you know, to set up the system there. And then an event occurred in Kansas City, which really threw the entire system in chaos. So there was a, this was the round robin EMS system with the five ambulance companies. There was a police officer that was shot up in North Kansas City, which is quite a bit of distance from downtown. And uh, they called for an ambulance, and no ambulance came within, I think, a period of about 35 minutes and this police officer hemorrhaged and died of a survivable wound. And there was a cub reporter from the Kansas City Star who got hold of this story, and he just kept digging and digging and digging, and these things were on the front page, and everyone and its successor was just worse and worse and worse, talking about just what a crazy system, unsystem, really, you know, we had in Kansas City, you know, and it crescendoed to the point where the city of Kansas City, councilmanic districts decided we can't go on with this, you know, so they told the mayor, you got to fix this, and somehow they got a hold of Jack and the fourth party, and they came to town, and um, they totally rebuilt the system, and you know, that was uh, the second public utility model system and the, the first one in which they ever did system status management because he really came to the conclusion that if we are going to provide this service, which he understood at that point was a natural monopoly, that the deal between the community and the government would be equal access to care for life-threatening emergencies to every citizen in the population. And in order to do that, he had to figure out a way to use the system's resources much more efficiently. And he had recognized that there truly were patterns of demand, both temporally and geographically in the system, and you could use those much uh, more intelligently in order to predict where the next call was going to come in. And that was system status management. And so I'm not sure exactly how they built it into, you know, the capability of a 48K Apple II computer. 
I mean, it, thinking back on how sophisticated these systems are now, I don't exactly know what they did, but I do know that there were system status plans for every hour of every day of the week, and they were based upon whatever historical demand patterns they knew, and so they, they had an historical precedent that they could match you know, the current staffing patterns to. They changed them at every hour based upon the historical demand, and of course they were constantly moving ambulances into the most likely location at that hour of that day for the next call to come in. And it was, it was brilliant, it really was. I, I had read a bunch of operations research about how other people had done you know, uh, staffing patterns and, and demand analysis and stuff for ambulance services or fire services, et cetera. It blew all that stuff away. I mean, it was, it was just incredible the way they did that. That was almost the genesis, if you like, the, uh, the origin story of high-performance EMS. And, of course, you know, a lot of those principles as defined, as invented, as implemented by Jack Stout are as good today as they were three decades ago, I guess. But, but between then and now, I'm going to come on to the future after the break, but uh, how have you seen things develop since that point up until today and obviously today we are just getting over a pandemic or are we and you know we're sitting here at the pinnacle conference doing some navel gazing working out what the heck we do next but uh, let's go from the, the implementation of, of a high performance ssm type system up to now what have you observed on in the changes in ems between then and now i think one of the things that jack recognized was pretty early on that this was medical care this should be the realm of physicians who are guiding us as far as how we make decisions on what to do. And those physicians should have an expertise in the things that we needed to do in the field. So emergency medicine was really, I think, a pretty obvious fit. And, you know, emergency medicine had already claimed EMS as one of the parts of its specialty expertise, although... In truth, we really knew very, very little about what it actually was at that time. I think one of the most important things that happened, uh, you know, early on in the mid-'80s was the formation of the National Association of EMS Physicians. And that was really an aggregation, you know, first pretty informally of people like me who are EMS system medical directors, you know, from all over the country. Uh, you know, Sandy Kuehl, who was the EMS medical director and the EMS director and the vice president of health and hospitals for New York, you know, health and hospital system. Paul Pepe, uh, Jeff Clausen was there. Uh, Ron Stewart was there from Pittsburgh EMS. Uh, you know, it, it was not a very big group of people, but the first meeting was at the Low Country EMS meeting in North Carolina, I think, or South Carolina, I don't remember. The second one was in San Antonio, and we, we got to finally meet people who did things like us. But, you know, it became clear to us almost immediately, these were not just emergency physicians. You know, they were surgeons, they were cardiologists, uh, the guy from Seattle was a neurologist. Uh, 
Michael Kopas. Um, so that we, we all came together because we understood this problem, but we, we all brought with us the expertise of all of our, you know, disparate clinical backgrounds and, and expertise. And I don't know that we really wanted to say it at that point, but it was clear to us, I think, who were in it, that this wasn't just the realm of emergency medicine. This was something different. And uh, Ron Stewart, who at that time was my boss at the Center for Emergency Medicine at Pitt, so that talk that I gave to the one person in the room actually paid off later. Um, you know, he was the first president of it. Paul Pepe was a significant force in, you know, recruiting people to join and kind of figuring out, you know, how it would look. And uh, that, to me, more than anything up to that point, really almost enabled us as physicians to have a place at the table in EMS. Because when you look at the regional EMS designs, there's no discussion of medical oversight. Who'd have thunk, you know? David Boyd was the guy, you know, in Washington. He was a surgeon, I think, working for the government. He designed all that stuff. Why didn't he put us into it? Nobody could figure that out, but we said that's, that's a big mistake. You know, the, the other things that I, I think happened, at least from my perspective, is there are several of us who had the opportunity to do this full time and to be truly a system medical director. And we really, we really understood Jack's idea about what the system was. It was everything from soup to nuts, you know, that influenced the outcome of a patient's care. So, you know, when I was in Pinellas, I oversaw the 911 system. I mean, our part of it. I was the guy who was the EMD medical director. I was the medical director for Sunstar, who was the private ambulance contractor. And I was the medical director for the 17 fire departments in Pinellas, who all provided first response in the system. So, there were very few of us who had that scope and really had influence over all parts of the system. But I've done part-time jobs and I've done full-time jobs. Being a full-time medical director is way, way easier than being a part-time one in a lot of ways. It's just because you can control the whole thing. You know? and, and we were really, I think, feeling our way along, trying to figure out what was important. Uh, you know, there was nothing like the Utstein criteria, so, you know, Fundamentally, when Jack started out with the uh, system status plans and the system, you know, the mass system in Kansas City, what he says was, tell me what is the time-critical, life-threatening emergency? What's the thing that we really have to make a difference in? And there was a paper that was published at that time by Mickey Eisenberg that said that if you <coughs> provided definitive care for a patient in the field with cardiac arrest within an eight-minute window, the likelihood that they would survive, get an ROSC, we didn't even know what to call it then, but, and then survive from the hospital, began to fall off precipitously after eight minutes. So Jack said, if that's what we're going to deliver to the patients in the system, is that, if that's what's owed you know, to our community, then we need to do that with a high degree of reliability at eight minutes. So, you know, we had had... Uh, 
the stuff from uh, Jeff Clausen, the EMD cards, and we knew a delta determinant was that set, much bigger actually than cardiac arrest. But so he said we have to get there with ninety percent reliability to every delta determinant call in order for the system to be what we owe the community. And so that then was translated into a specification in the performance contract, you know, for the provider. And that's what you had to do to be, to stay, uh, not be in breach of contract. So, you know, it, it began to become clear how you could take the clinical parameters that made a difference for patients in, you know, the ultimate emergency, if you will, and translate that into a system design that would enable a community to have really just access to life-saving intervention. That didn't mean we were going to save them, but at least we would get there within that window of survivability. And I think that kind of thinking made us as physicians who really knew nothing about systems. We were all clinicians. So we took care of patients one at a time. But it made us think about the big picture. And he, he was a master of, of translating those kinds of things into what does a system looks like, look like that delivers you know, that level of care. So those, to me, were the important things, I think, that were happening during that period. Wonderful. I'm just before we go to the break. I'm just going to join a few dots. I'm listening to you, Joe. There is a, a number of degrees of separation between us, which I've just made those connections. So, Jerry Overton, if you're listening, uh, you mentioned Jerry. Jerry's the guy that brought me to America. Yep. Um, yep. The Eisenberg work, um, of course, translated across the pond, and that became what was called the Orcon standard, which was the National Ambulance Service standard for response time. Yes. Uh, yep. And so the 759. Um, you know, a fractal response time was that UK response time. You mentioned Utstein. Uh, one of my mentors was Douglas Chamberlain, of course, whose name is on the Utstein template. So, and then, of course, I come across the US and I get to work with Ornato. Yep. And so, you know, it's, it's amazing. But we're going to... And gonna Roger Thane and Andy Newton. And Roger Thane and Andy Newton. And you, Chris Carney. Uh, Chris, oh my goodness. Yes, Chris Carney was, was also my boss. Uh, I was his <laughs> operations director. So, uh, sorry, if, if anyone else is listening to this podcast, we're just going down memory lane here, and I'll make sure all of those people across the pond listen. Uh, talking of listening, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Podbean, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment on the platform that you're listening to rate and review the show. Let's go to a message from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, Visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. We also want to talk about the future. As I say, we've been at Pinnacle. We've been kind of mulling over the, as I said, on day one, week one of the, the pre-con that I delivered, we're in a pickle. 
I perhaps also said we're also in the crap and it's only the depth that varies. But obviously, we've got to work out a way forward. We've got to think to the future. So, you know, let's, let's hear your thoughts, Joe. People say I see stuff that's not there. And it's not the dementia. But I have always had some kind of talent for connecting the dots. And this is what I think is important. They don't call it the baby boomer tsunami for nothing. And the problem with that is going to hit us full blown in the next few years. And that is that the greatest generation, God love them, my dad was one of them, were the most profligate users of healthcare resources in the history of mankind. And unfortunately, what happened as a result of that is the entire illness care unsystem, you know, was at the trough with this huge flow of money passing by and just gobbling it up and gobbling it up and gobbling it up. Well, when you look at the math now and you overlay that big hump of people my age, I'm a white hair, um, and you match that to the lifetime utilization of healthcare resources, what you see is there is going to be, and it's already started, a gigantic hemorrhage of money at CMS. It's not just going to be a nosebleed. It's going to be potentially a lethal nosebleed. We can't afford to sustain the kind of care that our, that our parents got at the end of their lives. But unfortunately, the system has now been engineered so that the system wants to provide all of that enormously expensive, you know, terminal critical care to these patients because that makes a boatload of money for the illness care unsystem. When Don Berwick got to CMS, you know, he was a, a recess appointee by, by Obama, and he was also the guy who was the director of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Great guy, very forward thinking. He recognized that this was unsustainable and they had to do something to fix that. Well, the good news is, interestingly, that is not what elders want. That is not what their families want. It's only being sustained because we don't enable patients when they're able to make these decisions. We don't facilitate it. We don't communicate that, or they don't themselves communicate that with their doctor, with their family, you know, at the same table, so that they have a plan. But what, what elders want instead is they want to live a life worth living for as long as possible in their homes, with their families, and in their communities. And when they die, they want to die with dignity, with the care of compassionate people around them. So in my mind, 
if you want to think about where the puck is going to be, it's all about trying to figure out how to keep those people from going through the door of the emergency department. Because as soon as you get through the door of the emergency department, there is a gigantic sunk cost that gets spent to no good end except to keep that current system going. I think if we're going to be part of the future, that's what we need to direct everything that we're going to do towards. Because everything else pales in terms of the volume of money that's going to be spent or has got to be spent better, you know, in order to deal with that problem. They don't call it a tsunami for nothing. I think we're uniquely positioned in order to be an integral part of that, you know. We're in communities. Uh, we have projected care at a distance for 40 years. Well, that's a novel idea. Don't they call that telehealth? <laughs> We've been doing telehealth for 40 years. We know all about how to do that. Not that we can't do it better. And I think there, the technology and our understanding of how things work well are at a point where we can do it much better than we have been in the past. Um, people love us. And guess what? We make house calls. We make house calls so that my new's best friends in medicine are all people in geriatric medicine because they understand much better than we do you know, what the real goals are of end-of-life care. It's not, you know, when somebody rolls to the emergency department today from a nursing home transfer, we have absolutely no records. We don't know what they want. We don't know what their families want. So our default is a full court press. So you do, you know, a $40,000 workup in the emergency department, and you find out they've got an MI, and then you find out they don't want to have a cabbage or any kind of intervention. They just want to be comfortable. That's what their family wants. But you've already spent all that money because you didn't know what they really wanted. The goals of end-of-life care that the geriatricians understand that we don't is they want people to have a life worth living, you know, as long as possible because everything is deteriorating over time. So, you know, when they see something happen in a nursing home, they call it a change of condition, you know, because the patient has already got a lot of disabling illness. And so they, they treat it from a totally different perspective, and the goals and the outcomes of that are much, much different. The first time I ever saw this and thought that we could do it, I was up with Patrick at EHS in, in Nova Scotia, and Andrew Travers showed us EMS medics who were responding to nursing homes who would do a workup, you know, with um, an ISTAT, with an EKG, uh, they had a dipstick urine, you know, so they could tell somebody might have a urinary tract infection. And then they would call Andrew, and they'd call the medical director of the nursing home, and they'd have a conference call, and the medic would say, this is what I found. And, the, you know, the two physicians would collaborate and say, you know, I think we can build a plan of care and keep this patient here, draw the labs on that patient that we'll need, 
give them an initial dose of antibiotics, you know, for their urinary tract infection that was dwindling down into urosepsis or whatever. Um, and let's, we'll make rounds on them tomorrow and see if we can keep them in the nursing home. And it was like, aha, wow. I mean, I was blown away. That was so brilliant on those guys' part. You know, they're all about doing brilliant things up there. But um, I saw how that could work. And I've been kind of, in my mind at least, on that pathway ever since, rethinking and refining. That's the pathway to the future for us. Because if you follow the money, that's where all the money is going to be spent. That's where all the savings need to happen. That's why we need to understand, everybody needs to understand what Matt's talking about, Zavasky. You know, value-based purchasing. Brenda Smith, you know, is now in the belly of the beast at CMS. It's all, I think, potentially coming together. If we focus. A couple of guys, I think, give pretty good advice, said, the greatest attribute for success in business is focus. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. I figure they might know what they're talking about. Some amazing wise words, and I'm going to connect a few more dots now, because you mentioned Chris Carney, who was my first ambulance boss when I went from a military medical corps person to a civilian ambulance, corps, ambulance person. Um, and one of the first jobs I had was to sign off and create the funding stream for this thing we called ACAPON, right? And ACAPON was appropriate care at the point of need. Bit of a mouthful, but it put a social worker and a paramedic and occasionally a handyman in a car that went round out to nursing homes, whether it's pain management, whether it's just nailing the rug down on the floor from the frequent faller, or in back in the day, you know, you move the VCR from down the bottom to up the top of the TV, because when they bent over to change the tape, then they fell over. And that became a difficult challenge just to say the word Acapon. And we thought, well, what should we call this person? And actually, well, he's a paramedic in the community. I know we'll call this person a community paramedic. And so my claim to fame with Dr. Carney was to be in at the beginning of that. And, of course, a lot of that was predicated on every nursing home called to have their end-of-life patient transferred to hospital because they didn't want to deal with it. And so, therefore, the Acapon medic or the community paramedic would go in and deal with it. And so I see exactly where you're going. I've seen exactly where the UK was with this. And I think you're absolutely right. And uh, what a what a masterful last five minutes. Um, for those that are listening, uh, Joe had asked me about creating podcasts. And I said, tell you what, in order to teach you how to do one, let's do one. And so, uh, as, you know, as I said at the start, a good interviewer, and hopefully I try to be a good interviewer, is to ask a question and shut up. And so by shutting up, you've given us some amazing responses. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the silver tsunami, the end of life care, make friend with a geriatrician or whatever the English and American version of that is. And that's my, my international comment for the day. Uh, Joe, time has flown by. So how can we get in touch with you? I am uh, one of the uh, EMS uh, fellowship faculty at Stanford. And, uh, you know, we have an EMS fellow that we bring on board every year, and I try to uh, tell them crazy stories uh, just to pass the time. Um, I am at, uh, my email is josephlryan at att.net, and uh, you can contact me there. I hope 
Joe, you'll come back on the podcast and regale us with some more of your wisdom because I think this is exactly what people need to hear. Uh, thank you. Don't forget, you can follow me on LinkedIn and also on Twitter at UKRobL1. The one is very important. Uh, I am so delighted to have had uh, Dr. Joe Ryan as my guest. Uh, that's been EMS One Stop. I've been Rob Lawrence. Until next time, bye for now.